0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, A Nameless Nobody Advises a Great Man, The Outsider In, The Insider Out. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 15th, 2009. In his book, The Faith of the Outsider, Frank Spina makes a close reading of the insider-outsider motif in the Bible. He begins with the unpopular reminder that it's impossible to ignore the scandal of particularity throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, for example, only Israel is God's elect people. We read in Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel is not only God's special insider community. As Spino notes, it's the only insider community. All the other nations are distinctly outsiders. Or in Paul's language from Ephesians 2.12, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. And similarly, in the New Testament, the early believers proclaim that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, John 14:6. If you excise this insider theme from the biblical narrative, you would end up with a very slender Bible indeed. But that's only part of the story, and it's easy to find many plot reversals on this theme. When God elected a single community Israel, his intentions were categorically universal in scope. We read in Genesis 12.3 that in Abraham all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And those same early Christians who proclaimed Jesus as the only way, also imagine heaven populated with a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation 7-9. So when we read the Bible carefully, we notice how often it features prominent outsiders. This inclusion of outsiders, says Spina, is neither incidental nor haphazard in the biblical witness. These outsider stories often include a significant plot reversal in which the insider is cast in a negative light and the outsider is portrayed as superior in virtue and faith. And in his book, Spina considers seven of these stories where the outsider is mainlined and the insider is marginalized. Esau, Tamar, Rahab, Jonah, Ruth, the woman at the well in John 4 who had married five times, and then the lectionary passage for this week about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman epitomizes the outsider for several reasons. He was from pagan Syria, a military officer of a major enemy of Israel. The narrative praises Naaman in glowing terms. He was a valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded. And then the writer adds a stunning detail. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan officer? Yes. And finally, Naaman had a skin disease. This disease might have caused Naaman some medical problems, but his real complications were social, religious, and moral. For people with such impurities were stigmatized as ritually unclean and therefore excluded from God's community and its worship. They were, in other words, outsiders. In search of healing... 2 Kings five, one calls Naaman a great man who embarked on a state visit with opulent gifts to visit the king of Israel. He had a letter of commendation in hand. But instead of the king, he met a nameless little girl from Israel who advised him to seek healing from the Hebrew prophet Elisha. The irony is unmistakable and Naaman's response is predictable. When this nameless nobody instructed the renowned military officer not to seek help from the corridors of political power, but from a religious prophet who told him to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River, he was incensed. But Naaman obeyed. He was healed. And then the plot thickens, when he was also converted. Now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel, he says. And finally, he made a curious request to take dirt from Israel back to Syria, as he says, For I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Maybe Naaman wanted to establish a portable, sacred space back home. Although back home in Syria, he continued to assist his master to worship in the temple of the deity Rimon. Naaman still asked for advance forgiveness for that compromise and declared his fidelity to the God of Israel. Naaman the outsider joined the insider community. A nameless little girl advised a great man, and the prophetic power of Elisha subverted social and political conventions. The story ends with a tragic reversal when greed overtook Elisha's servant Gehazi. He connived to obtain the gifts that Naaman had offered to Elisha which Elisha had refused. Gehazi, the insider of Israel's prophet Elisha, was then struck with the skin disease that originally afflicted the outsider pagan military commander Naaman. The story that began with this disease ends with it, with the difference that its victims have been reversed. The Syrian outsider has become clean, and the Israelite insider has become unclean. Presumption is the besetting sin in the chronic temptation of the insider. To our peril, we ignore, shun, and vilify the outsider as strange, dangerous, and unclean. We smugly imagine that we possess the truth, as few others do, rather than humbly ask God in His mercy that we might be transformed by His truth. Rather than considering solidarity with the lost, the lonely, and the outsider a privilege that enriches our lives, we construe the biblical story in a narcissistic manner to serve our own petty ends. The insider-outsider dynamic operates at many levels. Obama's election has reminded us of racism, ethnicity, what we think is an important job, a prestigious school affiliation, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, gender, age, body image, and politics. All these are identities that we embrace personas that we construct to comfort ourselves that we are the insiders and to scapegoat others as outsiders. As Luke 18, chapter 11 reminds us, self-delusion is never far away. God, I thank you that I'm not like all other men. In his book, What Jesus Meant, Gary Wills writes, No outcasts were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. Are there people now who could possibly, possibly be outside his encompassing love? Instead of defining other people as beyond the pale of God's love, we do better to emulate the Apostle Paul, the consummate Christian insider, who in the epistle for this week contemplates the very real possibility of his own banishment to outsider perdition. 1 Corinthians 9:24 24-27 And for further reflection... When have you experienced exclusion or inclusion, and what factors were at play? Who is the most inclusively loving person you know? And for further reflection, in addition to the book by Frank Spina, The Faith of the Outsider, see the book by Amartya Sen, Identity and Violence, and another book by Miroslav Wolf, Exclusion and and embrace. For books this week we have a guest book review. The title of the book is The Sermon on the Mount through the Centuries from the Early Church to John Paul II. The editors are Jeffrey Greenman, Timothy Larson, and Stephen Spencer. Brazos Press 2007 280 pages. This book review is by Ray Cowan, PhD, who's a member of the Laboratory for Nuclear Science at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Although I hasten to add that Ray is based here at the Stanford Linear Accelerator and serves as the Journey with Jesus.net webmaster. Here is Ray's book review of the book the Sermon on the Mount through the centuries. Most everyone agrees that the text known as the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 in parallel passages, forms the core of Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom of heaven. But what is much less agreed upon is exactly what Jesus was trying to get across. There's no question of its importance. What is in doubt is what he meant, and there's plenty of ideas about that. This volume consists of an introduction by Timothy Larson, followed by 11 essays by modern-day scholars and theologians. Each essay surveys the works of one or two well-known Christian figures regarding their interpretations of the Sermon. The essay authors include such names as Stanley Hauerwas, Mark Knoll, and Robert Louis Wilkin, while their subjects include the famous, such as Augustine Calvin and John Paul II, and the less famous, Hugh of St. Victor and John Howard Yoder. Time-wise, they range from the ancient, such as Chrysostom, to the modern, such as John R. W. Stott. My own favorite essay was the one by Stanley Hauerwas on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's and John Howard Yoder's views on the sermon. In my experience, most Christian teachers, authors, and preachers, past and present, view the Sermon on the Mount primarily as a set of rules to be followed or conditions to be achieved in order to receive some benefit to be given by God. So, for example, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It is assumed we should work hard at being meek in order to receive the promised benefit. Or at being poor, or in Luke's version, being simply poor in spirit. Or we should try hard to be mournful. But Bonhoeffer and Yoder run counter to this view. They see the sermon as depicting what happens when we are living in and as part of God's kingdom right now. Jesus is not setting out a few dozen more commandments to be mechanically, blindly, unthinkingly followed. In God's way of living, the poor are blessed because that's how life in the kingdom of God works. The mournful are comforted. The pure in heart see God. Those that need a coat are happily given a coat and cloak as well. Jesus isn't laying out rules. He's laying out life, the truly good life, and offering it wonders of wonders to you and to me. The view of the sermon as rules to be followed or conditions to be achieved in order to receive blessings from God gets it all backwards. And this view is so, so prevalent in modern Christian thought, and in past Christian thought as well, as you'll see if you read this book. Instead of seeing the Christian life as based in good under God, we take it and twist it and convert it into legalism, just like the Pharisees did. To the Pharisees, it didn't matter what sort of person you are on the inside. They based their righteousness simply on not doing wrong hate as much as you like, just don't murder anyone. Jesus explained his kind of righteousness in terms of living as an integral part of God's kingdom, a whole person, living where doing good under God is the right and easy and natural thing to do. On Jesus' view, hate is murder. Of course, we have come to see it this way. We just can't set out on our own and make it work. We do it, quote-unquote, under God, living confidently in reliance on Jesus and His authority in this world. For another view along these lines, see the book by Dallas Willard, The Divine Conspiracy. Overall, I'm glad I read this volume. Some parts were a bit too detailed and detached for a biblical non scholar like me but the authors have all done a careful job of condensing their subjects' views into a relatively few pages. I would recommend this book to anyone interested in learning more about the history of interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. A book review by Ray Cowan. The title, The Sermon on the Mount Through the Centuries. For film this week, I review The movie, Doubt, from 2008. Father Flynn, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is the priest of St. Nicholas Parish in the Bronx back in 1964. He smokes, drinks, takes sugar with his tea, preaches relevant sermons, and even thinks that a secular song would be good for the Christmas play. The church must change, he says. Sister Alosius, played by Meryl Streep, is the principal of the school and Flynn's polar opposite. She's loveless, joyless, authoritarian, and thinks the worst of everyone, especially of Father Flynn. So we're not surprised when she accuses him of an indiscretion with the school's first black student. When he strenuously objects, she responds, I have no proof, I have my certainty. But just when you thought the film traded on clumsy stereotypes, further layers of genuine complexity, ambiguity, and yes, doubt emerge. We, the viewers, are left with genuine doubt about what to think. Except for the last 30 seconds of the film, which I thought betrayed its character, the movie doubt contrasts religion that reduces virtue to moralism and that pri- prioritizes human compassion as its greatest good. Philip Seymour Hoffman in Merrill Streep in the movie Doubt. Finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by William Cowper. Many of you will recognize as a famous hymn. Cowper was a British poet in hymnist, and he struggled throughout his life with depression, doubts, and fears. The title of this hymn is God Moves in Mysterious Ways. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. William Cowper, 1731-1800 to 1800. God moves in mysterious ways. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, February 15th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.